0: Good morning. Um, we're in a three week series on our motto or our mission statement living the Lord's way, loving the Lord's people, and sharing the Lord's message. It's a statement of who we are or what and what we're about, or at least a statement of intent. This is what we intend to be and to be about. And the point is that among all the issues, all the questions, all the opportunities, all the programs, all the differences and preferences of style and so on and so on, all these things that pile on in church life, here is what we galvanize around. Here is something to help sort out priorities, that we should be living the Lord's way, loving the Lord's people and and sharing the Lord's message. And that's not something that's pulled out of thin air Rather, it comes from what we understand from the Scriptures of what the church is called to be. It's something to highlight, in essence, what Jesus was about and and what he commissioned his followers to be about. Because it's Jesus' church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ did not come into being um, because... Some people were looking for something to do on a Sunday morning. All the swing parts were shut up and everything else, so they thought, We better do something. We'll start church. Didn't happen like that. Nor did it come about that some people thought they should have something a bit more religious in their life, so let's let's go and start church. It didn't start, amazingly enough because a group of people fell out with another religious group and said, oh, we don't like the way they're doing it. We'll now go and do it better or do it differently. It didn't start from any of that. It started simply from the response to the gospel and the good news. It was the impact that Jesus made, and where that took people. And living the Lord's way and loving the Lord's people and sharing the Lord's message... Highlights three sets of relationships around which the church came into being and exists. A relationship with the living God, a set of relationships among the people of God, and how, as the people of God, we relate to the world around us. Now, last Sunday morning, looking around Psalm 51, we looked at some of the characteristics of a relationship with God. The gospel is not an invitation to believe in God or a command to believe in God, but rather an invitation to know God, to be in fellowship with him. And that involves us in similar things as having a relationship with any other person, that there should be some living contact and involvement, genuine interaction that affects us and changes us. This is not just for the very spiritual folk or the particularly committed disciples. It is not the X, Y, Z of the gospel, but the A, B, C. Do you know God? I wonder if you could give us confident an answer to that as to questions like, are you a church member? Or what church do you go to? And if we went around the room one by one, Answer that. Would we as easily, as certainly say, oh yes, I go to Claremont, and as easily and as certainly say as that, yes, I know God? Because that's what the gospel offers. That's what the gospel brings us to and invites us to. And one reason for doing this series now comes out of recent discussions and instructions from the church both General Assembly and Presbytery. And I mentioned more last Sunday morning about the trends and statistics that show not just serious decline in the church, but also show that the future is in serious jeopardy. Now, I'm not saying that the only reason, but I am saying that a main reason that we've got to this point over time It's because the structures and practices of the church have become more important than the reason for having them in the first place. We have become more attached to rituals, to frameworks, to structures, to programs, than we have to the gospel message and content. And if you don't believe me on that, go back to the question I posed a moment ago, whether you would as confidently say, I know God, as you would say, I go to Clermont." You see, the world around us is not in need of a message about good meetings to go to or a good or beneficial organization to join, but to meet a Savior, a life giving, life transforming encounter with a God who gives forgiveness and purpose and meaning and shape for life, not just for now, but for all eternity. Therefore, the proper response to these dismal figures about decline in the church is not to re-examine and tinker with rituals and programs, but in the first instance to reaffirm and give first priority to that which is most important, which is the gospel message and its impacts and fruits, and our calling, therefore, to be living the Lord's way and loving the Lord's people and sharing the Lord's message. Just one further comment to back up my, my point here is that we should notice just how little, how incredibly little is said in the New Testament about how the church is to do things. How incredibly little is said about customs, rituals, forms of prayer, styles of music, procedures, buildings, ordination, groups, programs, etc. Next to nothing on all of that. And yet, alongside that, notice how much is said about living the Lord's way, loving the Lord's people, and sharing the Lord's message. There is masses in the New Testament about how we are to relate to God and know God, how we are to do discipleship, how we are to be loving and supporting of one another, how we are to live in the world as Jesus' followers. Now, if the programs, if the rituals and the structures, if the the way and style that we do things mattered more, then you would have to say that Jesus and his followers mucked up big time. Because what they left us with in the New Testament is almost nothing. About groups and programs and rituals and and styles of things. And and masses on discipleship and and service and, and commitment to one another. And so if the buildings and the styles and everything else are more important, Jesus got it badly wrong. His disciples got it badly wrong. I wonder if any of us think that. I don't suppose any of us think that in any kind of acknowledged or formal way, but I wonder, I wonder if we behave sometimes as though that's the case. Well, anyone willing to bring that charge against the Lord on judgment day that he mucked up, you take your chances. I'm, I'm not with you on that one. You're on your own. And alongside that then, that real engagement with the living God that we looked at all too briefly last week, comes a command to live out this new life of the gospel with and among one another. And again, as we come to that subject, we immediately are battling against years of malpractice in the church and against prevailing views in the world around us. Views that we pick up because we live in the world and our society. It's naive in the extreme to think that we are not affected by culture around us, that we are not affected by public opinion. Of course we are. And a feature of today's Western society that we often overlook because it is so widely assumed is individualism. People are far less likely today, as before, to be involved directly with others or in community groups or with their neighbours. It's often taken for granted uh, in uh, our society that the individual is entitled to his or her own opinion, and that's more important than any shared truth. The individual's right to choose has become a key value of the consumer society. And in such a context, the key part given to community by the Christian gospel clashes with the generally accepted views and ways and we import, consciously or unconsciously, we import into church kind, of, into church ways, that kind of individualist individualized or private approach to things. Now that doesn't sit with what the gospel teaches. The scriptures from first to last they express a picture of faith that while personal, yes is also corporate. It's a people that God calls to himself, not a collection of individuals. The pictures or metaphors in the New Testament for the church are corporate ones, about being the family of God or the army of God or or the body of Christ with its different parts. They're all corporate communal pictures. No one can be reconciled to God without being reconciled to the people of God. And Jesus himself in John 13 said that it was by their love for one another that his followers would be identified as his disciples. Oh yes, they must be Jesus' disciples because see how they really love one another because for 60 or 70 minutes once a week they turn up in the same room and then go away again. That's going to convince the world, isn't it? Is that what God has called us to? No, contrary to that, the New Testament is peppered with commands, not suggestions, but commands about how we are to be with one another. And therefore, all of God's people, commands such as in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens, or 1 Thessalonians 4, comfort one another, in Romans 12, be devoted to one another, Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, Galatians 5, serve one another, and so on. There's about 60 of them. And even on on occasions where congregational life has brought folks together, very often it has had so little to do with our discipleship or shared mission to be Christ's disciple-making people in the world. When last did you ask someone, or have someone ask you about your faith? How they might pray for you or you for them, what has helped or what has hindered you in your Christian obedience. Even the way that the church buildings are set up indicates that we have little expectation about meeting one another or sharing with one another. We cannot find in the New Testament any guidance about what our buildings ought to be like, or even if we should have them. We don't find any guidance about capacity or shape or so on. But what, we, again, we do find in the New Testament is indications of how the church operated. Is what the key, was a key aspect of, was that they were coming together as the people of God to share with one another and to minister with one another. Now, what is described could not have taken place if they only met in one large room with everyone seated in rows just to go away again. That is not something that the New Testament recognizes as church. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that Leslie read for us um, a while ago, in that passage... Notice the Apostle Paul is talking about living the Christian life in a non-Christian context. He describes it, verses 4 and 5, as living as children of light in a dark age. That is, Christians, he's saying, are to be daytime people, even though the rest of the world might still be in night. He's saying in these verses... Here you are in the middle of the dark world, the world's night, but the Spirit of Jesus is with you and within you, and it's telling you that it's daytime already. You're already children of day and children of the light. God's new world has broken in upon this sad, sleepy, drunken, and deadly old world. That is what the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit has done. The new life of the new world has broken in, and we are to be people who live with that. And so he's telling the church in these verses that we're to be wide awake before the the full sunrise has dawned. We're to say to people by our beings that this is what's coming. Stay awake then, he says, because this is God's new reality and it will dawn sooner or later upon the whole world. And so he has verses 4 to 11 in 1 Thessalonians 5, this imagery, working through, and as part of that living of the children of light, he says in verse 11 that we are to encourage one another and build each other up. Again, one another. Mutual participation. This is not something that's to be done by a professional class of ministers. This is not something that's to be done just by some appointed office bearers. He's writing to the whole church. Just as these other commands that I read from Galatians and Ephesians and so on were to the whole church. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, serve one another, build up and encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 But why? Why should any encouragement or building up be needed? Because We're to live as people of light in a dark world. Because we're to follow Jesus, and in following Jesus, we're going against the grain of the rest of the world around us. It's not necessarily easy. Jesus said it was about taking up your cross daily and following him. He said it was about self-denial. And we cannot do it on our own. And if we are faithful to Jesus' calling, we are to live out the gospel in an alien land and context. Now, that should not be a surprise to anyone. It's in the scriptures, it's even too in our hymnody. Those of you who have been around Church of Scotland circles for a long time will have come across the hymn that we have going to sing at the um, end of our service who is on the Lord's side, and you'll have come across um, verse 4 of that hymn. There's the first two lines, chosen to be soldiers in an alien land, chosen, called, and faithful for our captain's band. Now, what have you thought about on the occasions when you've come to that hymn and, and sang these words? What is the alien land? No, it's not Edinburgh. What is the alien land? The alien land is the place that we live because as 1 Thessalonians 5 is saying to us, it's it's the dark world in which we live. It it is not a Jesus world. It is not a Jesus-shaped life. The values of society are out of step with the teaching of Christ. The individualism that's rampant is out of step with the teaching of Christ. So in that sense, it's alien. We don't have to cross oceans to be in the alien land. We just have to step outside the door. Chosen, called, and faithful for our captain's band. What does it mean to be called to be in Jesus' band? Now, the hymn writer is not meaning that we're all going to be given instruments to play. Not to say, what does it mean to be part of Jesus' people? What does it take to be soldiers for Christ? And can we do that functioning on our own? What sort of army is it um, whose, whose soldiers never confer with one another who never work out their tactics together, who never help and, and encourage one another and and, and and egg one another on. I'll tell you it's a crap army that's going to get beat, <laughs> isn't it? An army where the soldiers are not participating and serving and, and building up one another and focusing on, on, on the challenge and focusing on what it takes to, to deal with opposition, that, that army's doomed. And it's because church life has too often been about programs and procedures and church and and stuff that we've not fulfilled or even sought sometimes to fulfill these commands to build one another up and to encourage one another. And therefore, we have been that ineffective army. And the sadness of that is not, and sometimes I hear People saying this kind of thing, isn't it terrible? All these churches have closed down and da 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 That's not the real sadness. The sadness is, when we've been like that, we've let Jesus down. People haven't heard the good news. Jesus has not been honored and glorified as he deserves to be. It's because of the sheer futility of being an army whose soldiers or members keep themselves to themselves, that Paul gives instructions like encourage one another and build each other up in verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 5. To do that, we need to know others, share with others, not simply in polite terms or in general, not just in how's life going terms, but in working out and applying how the gospel truth influences and affects all of life. To have a large gathering where most of the participation comes from the front of the room does not and indeed cannot fulfill the New Testament picture of church. It's not that it could be done better or whatever so that it takes us to that picture of what the New Testament calls church. The simple fact of the matter is it's not set up to be. Because the New Testament picture of church is one where we together are helping, encouraging, and building one one another up. Loving the Lord's people takes mutual involvement and commitment. It requires a level of sharing, of openness, of ministry to one another. It doesn't happen simply by turning up and going away, particularly if we're going to turn up, sit by ourselves or as far away from others as we can before we go away. That is not the testimony and lifestyle of a community who are loving one another, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, etc., etc. Someone might ask, um, well, can I not just be a member or can I not just be a Christian without being part of Jesus' army? No, Jesus did not leave that option open to us. Jesus didn't even intend to leave that option open to us. Jesus said that the mark of being his disciples would be that love for one another. A new command, not suggestion notice, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, that is with that kind of serving, giving, building up, caring ministry, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. John 13, 34. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Amen.